Well, you know, I like, I like to start with a question. So my first question is, what is faith? And I want you to think on that. I don't necessarily need an answer out loud. But I want you to think about, what is faith? So keep thinking on that. Because that's what we're talking about this morning. And I wanted to give an example from my own life about uh, faith. When, uh, when, I was called to, uh, when I was called into ministry... It wasn't something that had been on my radar. It wasn't something that I had planned on. So Kerrison and I, newly married, I had a lucrative career. I bought a, a house that was quite fitting to that. It was all brand new in this nice lake community. And uh, one of the questions my mom had for me when I first uh, felt like I was called to ministry and I was going to go to school, to Bible college, is what about your house? And I said, well, I crunched the numbers, you know, with Kerrison working and uh, with me working in between, we'll still be able to afford the house. So it'll be fine. But then Kerrison and I started praying and thinking about it, and we thought, you know, we really want to start a family. And we don't want to wait till I'm done Bible college to start a family. So crunched the numbers again and realized, well, this house isn't going to work if we want to start a family. So we determined that we had to uh, sell and get a house that we could put a basement suite into. I'm a little handy. I didn't used to be, but I worked in the trades for a while, so I learned a few skills, and I thought, well, I'll put a basement suite in. So we started searching for a house that would suit our needs to be able to build a basement suite over the summer. Uh, But at the same time, we listed our house. Our house sold, but we didn't buy another one yet. We looked, and we looked at a lot of houses, but for some reason in in that time in Edmonton, it was uh, much more of a seller's market than a buyer's market, which meant it was easy to sell and hard to buy. And so the the weeks ticked by as the the move-out date came closer and closer, and we started running out of time, and we started getting nervous, and we, we kept praying, and we kept thinking, and we kept hoping. We kept having faith that we felt like we were doing what God had asked us to do. Uh, we tried to make deals with God. Those don't usually don't work, but we just... We tried, to, we tried to just keep going and keep going. We just, we had faith. I, I worried and I had fear, but even throughout all that, we had faith. That God had called us, that we felt like this was the step we were supposed to do, and that God would make it happen. And boy, is his timing just, just there. We ended up finding a house that was vacant, and so the, they were fine with a quick possession date, and so we had about a week overlap between our two houses, just enough to move everything in there. And, uh, and then, I don't recommend this, but then we went on vacation right away. <laughs> Paid for, not by us, because we didn't have that, any money. But, but yeah, we went on vacation. So we threw all our boxes in and then went on vacation and came back. And God, God really uh, came out for us. You know, we would have we had fines. We would have had fees. We could have had other options. We could have moved into my parents' house. Yay. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, but that's not what we wanted, and that's not what we felt like God had. So we, when, when it looked the worst, we chose, you know, we're going to have faith, and we'll just trust God, and God came through. So what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. In plain language, it's having hope in something you can't possibly see. So maybe it makes you look a little crazy, but that's what faith is. And we all put our faith in something. All of us do, no matter what it is. We have confidence or hope in something that we don't know the end result of. 
We hope maybe that our, our situation will get better. Maybe we hope that uh, the marks from our tests will come back better than we expected, whether they be academic or health tests. Or we hope that we'll have saved enough money for our retirements. I'm a little years off there, but thinking about that one day. Or we hope that the weather on our vacation that we've already paid for will be good. Or we hope that God will bless us with another child or with another grandchild. Or we hope that we'll be able to make more friends. We hope, we hope, we hope. We all hope in something. We all put our faith in something. We often put hope in circumstances that are beyond our control and situations that by and large are totally, utterly out of our control but they're not out of God's control. And so we're working on a series uh, uh, on the book of Mark called The Life of Jesus. So The Life of Jesus, we're walking through and we're kind of bouncing around. And last week we looked at how Jesus was the promised healer. We looked at three passages uh, from Mark, including some promises from Isaiah about how this promised healer would heal the blind Uh, would make the lame walk and make the deaf and mute hear and speak. And Jesus did these miracles. He did things that only with God was possible. He did because he is God. And this morning we're looking at two more amazing healing miracles. Uh, We're going to be in Mark 5, 21 to 43. But we're going to be focusing not so much on the miracles themselves, but on the faith of two of the characters in the story, two of the real people involved that shows us what it means to have faith. And we will see as our main point that faith drives us to Jesus. That's where faith takes it. It has to take us straight to Jesus. So keep, uh, keep your eye Bible or your hard copy Bible open to math, or Mark 5, 21 to 43. And uh, it starts in the NIV out of this, in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake... A large crowd gathered around him and he was, uh, while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. You know, the Bible is full of real people with real stories and real emotions. And I'll ask you in a a few minutes, but put yourself in this guy's shoes of what it is. But Jesus, to put some context here, Jesus has been stirring up quite the crowds. The the word of him, even though he has uh, done some amazing miracles up to this point, he's cast out demons, he's healed people. uh, He's told them often to be quiet, not to tell anyone, just keep it to yourselves. But even regardless of that, people couldn't keep their mouths shut. And they just went around and told people about Jesus. So everywhere Jesus went, the word went ahead of him that he was coming, that he was this amazing healer. And so the crowds came around him and jostled him. They just, you couldn't get there. And one of the things, one of the reasons why Jesus told them to keep silent was because Jesus was going against some of the religious conventions of the day. And he caused some controversy. And the religious order of the day uh, were concerned that Jesus was usurping their authority that he was going against what they were doing and that he was a rebellion. He was trying to start a rebellion. And so this first man that we're looking at, Jairus here, he was a religious leader in a synagogue. It was somewhat a religious slash political position. And just to put the context here, the, the religious authorities were a little worried about what Jesus was doing. 
And so the smart political move for this man would have been to try and ignore Jesus. But he ignores that convention, and instead, he steps out in faith, and not only just asks Jesus, would you come please and heal my daughter? He had authority, he had political influence. No, he instead gets down on his hands and knees and begs Jesus to come and lay his hands on her. And so Jairus' faith drove him to Jesus. He had faith that Jesus would be able to do something. Now, imagine what kind of faith would it take for you to leave the bedside of your dying little girl to go seek out this miracle man, this, this man who's told that he can heal things. What kind of faith does that take for you to leave her, to let go of her hand, and to run to this person, this Jesus? What kind of faith would that take? How desperate would you have to be? Continuing in verse 24, it says, So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. This is a, we're introduced to our second person in the story that we're looking at. She remains unnamed even to this day, but she, this woman had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And uh, this, this woman was in incredible suffering. So this was a day uh, that uh, when a woman had her, her natural menstrual bleeding, she was actually unclean uh, according to the law. And so if uh, it, she couldn't go to uh, public worship gatherings, she couldn't touch other people because if anyone touched her, they, ha- they were ritually unclean, so they had to wash all their clothes and go bathe and have a certain amount of time before they could go to public worship. And anything, any chair she sat on or any uh, bed that she lied in would pass on that contamination to those people. So this woman, not only just for her regular monthly cycle, but for 12 years had been bleeding and had been ritually unclean. And so can you imagine what that would be like? She passed on her uncleanness to anyone around her. So she suffered physically. She had the signs of her own decaying mortality, of her lifeblood pouring out of her. The blood that was essential to life draining out of her body constantly. And then on top of that, she would have suffered socially and psychologically. She would have been forced to be isolated. And she, was, she knew that she would pass on her uncleanness. And so whether she wanted to or not, she was treated like she was unclean, regardless of what she had done. And it's not like she hadn't done her best. She had went to doctor after doctor and spent all she had. All of her money, all of her income, all of everything she had, she had done her best to get clean, to, to get healed. And it had only made her suffering worse. So she'd become impoverished after seeking the help of doctors and it had been a fruitless pursuit for a cure. She was no better off. And after all of that, after she was so desperate, her faith drives her to Jesus. Her last chance. And it says in verse 27, when she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed 
from her suffering. Now imagine that. Notice that it doesn't say she was healed. It says immediately she was freed from her suffering. Now she was healed, but her freedom was what Mark chooses to emphasize. And this shows us that true healing actually brings freedom. Freedom from pain, freedom from suffering, freedom from fear, freedom. There's all different types of freedom. And remember, this woman, she was not supposed to be there. She wasn't supposed to touch anybody else. Now, I don't know if anyone else has been shopping at Christmas in West Edmonton Mall, but I have, and I don't like crowds. And so I don't know why I was there, but procrastination has its efforts, I guess, or effects. But just imagine that kind of crowd, whatever the biggest crowd you've ever been in. People are jostling. Jesus was right in the middle of that, and everyone is trying to get there because they believed if they just touched Jesus, they would be better. And this is, uh, this is something that, uh, that in that culture, they just believe that it's almost like magic if you touch somebody who's that powerful that you would, you would pass on that. But, so this woman here isn't supposed to be here. But it says in verse 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? And his disciples say, you see the people crowding against you? And yet you can ask, who touched me? Imagine the crazy of that. You're in this giant crowd. Who knows who's bouncing into who? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Why does Jesus ask who touched him? Have you ever thought of that if you've read this before? Why does he ask who touched him? Was it curiosity? Well, his, his disciples obviously don't get it. Because they say, well, who, how could you possibly know who touched you? It's like being in a Christian mosh pit. Everyone's kind of gentle, but they're, they're bouncing into each other. But Jesus has a reason. Now, this woman had good reason to be scared. And she was so scared that she was trembling. Because what she did here was wrong in, in the religious order of the day. She, she was affecting other people with her uncleanness. The religious rules, the, the letter of the law would have said she shouldn't be there. She shouldn't be touching anyone. And yet she goes up through this crowd. I'm sure she got jostled to touch this Jesus. So she's sitting there and going, oh, no, I'm in trouble now. He's caught me. She's, just imagine what she's thinking, how much fear she has. And she came in trying to remain anonymous. She didn't even talk to Jesus. She didn't come from the front. She was just trying to come from the back and just touch his cloak. She didn't want to even touch him, just his clothes. And she tried to get something from Jesus without getting to know Jesus. She tried to just get something from him and yet remain anonymous. She didn't want to talk to Jesus, but he didn't allow that. Jesus, uh, uh, this story brings me back to Genesis was the, the history of Adam and Eve in the garden. And they had just sinned. They had, they had taken and eaten the fruit of the tree of the garden, which is the, uh, the knowledge of good and evil. And God asks, as he's walking in the, in the garden, where are you? Now God is God. He knows everything. So when he asks a question like this, he already knows the answer. So he's not asking it for him. He's asking it for them. He's asking them to confess what they have done. 
And the same way, Jesus is asking this woman. He said, why don't you, why don't you explain to the crowd what you've done? She, he's asking her essentially to give her testimony. She doesn't want to. So the question isn't for him, it's for her. So what was, uh, imagine with me, what would have been the worst part of her suffering? Now, I'm not a woman, and I hope that's obvious. But often women, especially if they have problems with bleeding too much around pregnancy or, or birth or even menstru- uh, menses, have trouble with iron deficiency. And uh, they have problems with anemia or things like that. My mom for years couldn't give blood because she was too anemic. But uh, things like that, you, you're not able to do this. So this woman would have probably been constantly tired. They didn't have a ton of red meat in their diet, so, and they didn't have iron pills, so she probably was constantly tired. She probably also was constantly uh, maybe in pain. And, but was her physical situation the worst of her suffering? No. It was, it was probably isolation. It was probably that she wasn't allowed to be around other people. That other people would treat her like she was yucky, like she was unclean. And actually in the, in the justice system, uh, one of the worst punishments that they have isn't just going to prison. It's going into isolation. They have a bunch of different names for it, like the shoe or uh, all of these different terminologies. But that's the worst thing that they can do. And they've actually done studies now about the the psychological effects of being in isolation too long, of being deprived. Even uh, the social environment of a prison can be made worse by being alone and isolated. And this woman, even though she was around people, she could never truly be with people. She wouldn't be allowed to be touched without making people unclean. And so her worst part of her suffering was probably the isolation. It was probably the total, utter aloneness. But Jesus, in verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Wow. Don't don't lose this. Maybe you've read it lots of times, maybe you're familiar with it, but don't lose that. You know, Jesus often did things that was unexpected, but can you imagine this? This woman was probably expecting a scolding. At the very least, maybe she was expecting condemnation or judgment, and maybe, maybe she was expecting who knows. But that's not what Jesus said. Instead, he actually calls her by a very personal, very loving term. He says, daughter. That's a familial term. That that's, that's shows concern. He doesn't say woman. He says daughter. And he points to her as an example of faith in the midst of this crowd. This woman wanted to remain anonymous. She didn't want, she wanted Jesus to heal her, but she didn't want anything else. She just wanted to come to him and get healing. He said, no, that's not good enough. He actually lifts her up out of the crowd and points her out. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. And then blesses her with this blessing of go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So Jesus takes this woman who wanted to be, who others would have avoided, and who herself tried to stay anonymous, And he places her in the center of them and says, this is an example of faith. And before he leaves, he blesses her with peace and freedom. Jesus points out and lifts this woman out and shows that she is cared and that she is loved for. She's worthy of identification. She's worthy of individual care. And even though she might have expected a scolding for touching him without permission, he just blesses her. What an amazing thing is that. That she's worth taking time and concern for addressing. 
You know, there's, uh, as a total aside, but there's some people that think, well, you know, I, I hear about God and about Jesus, and he's great, but, but he doesn't really know the things I've done. He doesn't really know all of the terrible bad things that I've done. I'm really bad. And you know what that is, actually? That's pride. That's not actually, that's not actually humility. And so someone thinking that they're too bad for Jesus is just foolishness. Jesus cares about this woman that no one else would touch, and he blesses her. That's what Jesus longs to do for everyone, no matter what they have done, no matter what they have said, no matter. If they come to him in faith, they'll receive blessing of peace and freedom from suffering. And so Jesus uh, points out her faith. And so I want to ask, what heals this woman? He says, your faith has healed you. So what's healed this woman? Does our faith heal us? Well, yes and no. Because to ask it slightly differently, was it her faith or was it Jesus' power? Because it says when she touched him, Jesus felt the power go out of him. So her faith brought her to Jesus, but it's his power that actually healed her. But he points out her faith even though it's clearly Jesus' power that heals her. And the reason is because God heals and works in our lives through our faith. God doesn't force himself on anybody. So without faith, God isn't able to show his power to us because he won't force it on us. And so it's not that he couldn't, it's that he wouldn't. And so he points out her faith. Faith uh, really matters, the subject of your faith. Because if she just has faith, well, I'm going to be healed, I'm going to be healed. But it's not faith in Jesus. It's not faith in Jesus' power. And it doesn't mean anything. For example, if I had all of the faith in the world that I could fly, and I could take bullets to my chest and they just bounce off. In other words, if I had all the faith in the world that I was Superman, I still can't fly. And I still would get shot and hurt. Uh, I've heard a story about a little boy who was convinced after watching Superman that he could fly. And he wouldn't trust his dad trying to tell him, no, you can't fly. No, you can't fly. And so he goes up on the top of the garage and he's ready to jump. And his dad says, you can't fly. And uh, the, the son says, yes, I can. Just watch me. And the dad says, okay. So the son jumps. One broken leg later and a cast for a few weeks. He said, okay, dad, I trust you. Sometimes even our faith, if it's in the wrong thing, doesn't do anything. So it's only faith in God that actually works. Because Jesus' power works through our faith. And in this example, he works through her faith. So in verse 35, it says, While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus. So again, bringing back the story of Jairus and what happened, if you're curious. The synagogue leader. It says, Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Who needs that this morning? Don't be afraid. Just believe. And then it says, Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Those are Jesus's three closest disciples. So remember, the Bible is a, is a real account of real people's stories who had real emotions. These aren't two-dimensional characters, even though we just read about them and we don't know that much about them sometimes. What would you feel in this moment? Put yourself in Jairus' shoes. 
You, you left your, your dying daughter's bedside to run to this person that you put your faith in that they could heal him when no one else, or heal her when no one else could. And now someone comes from your house and says, it's too late. Don't bother him anymore. She's already dead. What do you feel in that moment? Shock? Utter desperation, utter sadness? What do you feel? Just feel that for a second. But then this man, this faith healer, this, this person who's this miracle worker that you've heard about says, don't be afraid. I can, I can just imagine that. What do you mean don't be afraid? They just said my daughter's already dead. You're telling me don't be afraid? Just believe. So remember the definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And what did this man have confidence in? It seemed like he had enough confidence in Jesus' power to heal that he came to him. And the hope that he did not see, he hoped that his little girl would be all right. He didn't see it yet. So now is truly the time for this guy to step out in faith. His faith had already brought him to Jesus. Is it going to bring him the rest of the way? So at the coming messenger, this man is given the opportunity to demonstrate his own faith and to believe rather than to fear. Faith is something that we have sometimes when we have nothing else. The situation looks so terrible that there's nothing else to hope in but our faith. Faith is what we have when all the chips are down, when we're broke, when we're hurt, when it seems like we're all alone. And faith is all we have. It's something that can trust in the middle of hopelessness. It trusts even when it can't understand. Even when it seems like God's not answering. And in verse 38, it goes on to say, When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion. And with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And after he put them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. Now, sometimes your faith can make you look like a fool. And maybe some people will laugh at you when you say, no, I'm just trusting God. I've got nothing left. Maybe it makes you look foolish. Maybe when I sold my house in order to be able to still afford going to Bible college, I look like a fool in my mom's eyes, maybe. But faith is willing to step out and just to say, let them laugh. I'm not trusting in them. I'm trusting in God. So Jesus took her by the hand, in verse 41, and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And he gives strict orders not to let anyone to know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. You know, the Bible sometimes throws in these little details that maybe we don't get or we don't understand why they're in there. But Jesus here, this Talitha uh, Kuum is Aramaic. It was the common tongue of the day. And it, was, it would have been these, uh, Jesus' heart language. And he just throws it in there as a little detail. And the other is that to give her something to eat. They believed in spirits. And they believed in ghosts. 
And so Jesus throws this in to tell, her to, or tell them to give her something to eat because spirit couldn't eat. Spirit didn't have a body to eat. So he's proving to her or proving to them that she was truly raised from the dead. It's the same way after fast-forwarding to the end of Jesus' life and resurrection. When, uh, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, he ate with them. It's not that he needed food. He had a glorified body. But it showed them that he was real. That he truly was there in flesh. So Jesus is showing them this girl is truly alive. Now imagine this. Imagine you're just seeing Jesus in this room with this little girl. You're these parents that have this pit in your stomach of going, this can't be real. I can't believe she's truly dead. He said she's asleep. Maybe she is just asleep. And then you see him speak out in Aramaic a command. Little girl, I tell you, get up. And she does. Wow. Imagine that. Just imagine your loved one is dead. You know they're dead. You're not a fool. You can see that they're dead. And you pray for them and they stand up. That's insane. That's crazy. What kind of faith does that take? Not even to to witness it, but to, to believe that that happened. It's this plain command. But Jesus, he's clearly not going for his own, uh, his own uh, attention here because he says, don't tell anyone. Can you imagine that? You raise someone from the dead? I'd be like, tell the whole world. That's amazing. But Jesus says, no, no, keep it quiet. I don't, I don't want people knowing this. I just did this for you guys, but not. Now, Jesus, uh, he had been laughed at by the mourners who had been weeping and wailing, and he said, no, she's just sleeping. Don't worry. She's going to wake up. And they laughed at him. Well, just imagine his parents. Who's laughing now? Weeping tears of joy and jumping up and down. This, This shows that Jesus can heal anything, even death itself. Now, not always, right? Jesus doesn't always heal death, but ultimately he does. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, he, he healed actually three people from the dead, but they all died again. He healed this woman of her bleeding and her suffering from 12 years, but she would have gotten older, her body would have started breaking down, she would have had aches and pains and creaks, and she would have eventually died too. So Jesus, when he was on the earth, he healed temporarily, but all of these people had their faith to come to Jesus. Because faith drives us to Jesus. Now Jesus told Jairus not to fear, but just believe. But the experience of following after Jesus is often a mix between fear and faith. And sometimes we don't get that mix perfect. Sometimes we're in situations and we worry. But the truth is, no matter how small or great our faith is, Jesus can still work through that. There's a a man who says, I believe, help my unbelief. And we can cry that to Jesus. One of my favorite uh, litanies of prayers that I've gotten from uh, uh, Pastor Mark at my my Bible college was help. And this was your idea in the first place. Those are a couple of my favorite prayers because, you know, God calls us to do something that I don't understand. So I just tell him, you know, God, this is your idea. You're going to make this work out. So Jesus told Jairus not to fear, but to believe. But faith actually marks the beginning of a transformed life. If we have faith in Jesus, however small or however great, it shows that we're in the process of getting closer and closer to Jesus. 
Now, I just want to highlight really quick for us here four different aspects of faith that we can see from this story. The first is that faith opens the door to the power of God. If we have faith in Jesus, God will work through us. God can and will work through us. Faith transfers divine powers to those who are utterly helpless. Like this man whose daughter had died, Jesus rose her again. Like this woman who was suffering for 12 years, Jesus healed her. Now faith can be imperfect, and yet it could be, or it could be bold, it could be halting, it could be brave, it could be filled with fear and trepidation. And yet if we have faith, even the sliver of faith, Jesus can work through that. What matters most for it to be effective is that it's directed at Jesus. That he is who our hope and and trust is put in. So what saved Jairus' daughter and this unnamed woman from their suffering was faith in Jesus. The second is that faith shows persistence. It doesn't give up in the face of fear. It doesn't give up in the way of obstacles. This woman worked her way through the crowds to get to Jesus' robe, even though all of the, the... Um, thoughts that she shouldn't have, all the fear would have kept her there, but she worked through the obstacles. The synagogue official disregarded the political uh, expediency of trying to ignore this Jesus or reject this Jesus. He put his political career on the line, and he put his, his, uh, his uh, arrogance on the line to bow down at his feet and beg him to help him. And it took faith for him to keep going and to hope and to believe, even when he had only reason to fear. And thirdly, faith takes action. Faith is something that can be seen. Like the men digging through the roof to get their friend to Jesus that was paralyzed. It's belief in just uh, nothing, or belief in Jesus itself doesn't bring healing. But it's faith that takes action does. So I can believe all I want, that Jesus is good and that he has faith. But if he's asking me to do something, then that's what actually shows faith. So I can believe and I can know all I want about the truth about who Jesus is. But unless I actually act on that faith, it's useless. We need to actually step out and take action. You know, in Exodus uh, 14.22, in rabbinic tradition, in the, the Jewish tradition, when Jesus parted the Red Sea, the tradition says that Jesus didn't part it as soon as they put their sandal toes in. It actually says it didn't part it until the people at the front had their nostrils in the water. Jesus waited until they actually stepped totally out in faith to the point where they were almost drowning before God moved. So sometimes our faith needs to be like that. We need to persist, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's getting hard, even when it's painful. That We need to be up to our nostrils before God moves sometimes. So faith doesn't sit and wait for God to act. It steps out and trusts that God will do his part when we do what we have been told to do. So the touching of Jesus' robes almost appears like magic. And it kind of was in their, in their way. But Jesus even moves through her imperfect understanding of who he is. Jesus wasn't magical. Jesus is God. But yet he honored her faith. And so she took a big step forward in faith. And he brought her one step closer to a relationship with her. He pointed her out in the crowd and lifted her up and said, Daughter, bless you, your peace. So he honors sometimes our imperfect faith, but he wants more for us. He wants us to step deeper and closer. So maybe he accepts a little bit of faith, but he wants us to have great faith. 
So sometimes he'll put us through circumstances that we need to deepen our faith. And lastly, our faith drives us to Jesus. Jesus can't be our backup plan. Jesus can't be, well, I'll go there if everything else doesn't work out. Jesus has to be our only plan. Jesus has to be our everything. Faith is this deep desperation that I need Jesus. It's like I need air to breathe every day. Faith is saying, I need Jesus. If you're living a life of faith, it means that you can't live another day unless God moves in your life. It's this deep, utter desperation that you have nothing left but Jesus. This woman had spent all the money she had had. She went to every doctor that she possibly could. She had nothing left. So she went to Jesus. Jairus had nothing left. No doctors could help. His, his daughter was dying. In his desperation, he went to Jesus. And it's at that time when we cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. And we have this yearning and this need for grace that we need God's help, that he shows up so powerfully. He is so good and so faithful. Now this passage offers no explanation whatsoever for the evil in the world. It offers no explanation why God healed these people and not others. It offers no understanding for us why there are so many tragedies that still happen, why they're the saying good people get sick and die and bad people stay around for lives. It, it offers us no understanding for that. But there's two men, or three men rather, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that showed faith even when it made no sense, even when they didn't understand. And they say in Daniel 3, 17 to 18, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us. But, and this is a big but, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that's King Nebuchadnezzar, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. My God will save me. I know that. But even if he doesn't, I don't, I don't mind. My God will heal me. But even if he doesn't, I will honor him. My God will free me of my suffering. But even if he doesn't, He's still my God. Jesus came in power and in healing and in majesty and in glory and moved so powerfully through the whole time he was there on earth in bodily flesh doing his ministry. He healed three people from death. He healed countless others of diseases. And yet there were millions and millions others he never healed. And we don't know why. Only the Lord knows. And I know it sounds like a cop-out. But it's not. That's what faith is about. It's about trusting God even when we don't understand. Even if we can't possibly understand. It's saying God is still good no matter what. And I will trust him even if he doesn't. Even if. In one of the lowest points in the church reformer Martin Luther's life, his daughter Magdalena was stricken with the plague at the age of 14. And he sat on her deathbed. It says, his uh, biographer writes, he was brokenhearted and he knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from the pain. When she had died, the carpenters were nailing down the lid of her coffin. Luther screamed out, hammer away. On doomsday, she will rise again. 
Is that our hope? I don't know when each of us is going to die. Maybe Jesus will come back before I'm done this, uh, this, this worship service today. Maybe Jesus will come back in 10,000 years. I don't know. But when we die, I would pray that I would have the faith to bury my loved ones and say, hammer away, because I know on doomsday they'll rise again. What kind of faith does that take? What kind of hope does that have? You know, Jesus started a revolution, but it wasn't a one-man liberation of the Roman army, and it wasn't a one-man emergency room. The revolution he started was death being conquered and defeated. Sin was defeated, and he made a way for us to have that freedom and have that life. Do you know that freedom? Do you know that joy? Do you have that faith that says, if your loved one dies, you know, hammer away, because I know where they're going, and I'm going to be there with them one day. My friends, we have time left on this earth, and I don't know where you are in your relationship with Jesus. I don't know if he's a close friend you walk with every day or he's someone you're just barely learning about. But I would say, if you don't have this faith, you need it. You need to get it. Because nothing else matters in this life. Everything in this world that you put your faith, hope, and trust in, if it's not Jesus, is going to disappoint. It's going to let you down eventually. So let me uh, just give us three quick ways of acting on it this week. And then let me pray for us as the worship team comes up. So the first is read. Read Hebrews 11. I truly believe reading the Bible is powerful and effective. And Hebrews 11, this chapter, is all about faith in action. So it's faith lived out. And the second is pray. Pray for more faith. Whether you have none or a ton, you can always get more faith. And third is obey. Share with somebody about your faith this week. Maybe it's just about your faith exploration that you're just trying to figure out who Jesus is or you have faith in him for 100 years. Whatever it is, share with somebody this week. So let me pray as the worship team comes forward. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. And I thank you for what you do in our lives. And I thank you that we are able to have faith not in just things, but in you as the person, Jesus. That you are the one who our hope is built in. May that be true for all of us here, that our faith is built in nothing less than your blood and righteousness. Help us to follow after you, however imperfectly, with however much fear and trembling, that we would put our faith and hope in you, Jesus. So thank you for who you are, and thank you for what you are doing in our lives. In your mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.